0: Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we commit our hearts and our minds to you right now as we open the truth of your word. May it speak clearly into our lives convict us, Father. May it challenge our thinking. May it mold and shape us. May we hear from you very clearly, Father, and may we be transformed more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles this morning and open to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. We are continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts, a series that we've entitled From Ordinary extraordinary and if you're new with us this morning we've been kind of walking through the early first century church we've seen God take a group of kind of ordinary believers people that were scared to death afraid hiding in the upper room, through the power of the Holy Spirit working through them, through uh, some pretty exceptional events. God has taken ordinary people and done extraordinary things through them. So we've kind of tracked along and followed along with several of these people. Peter, for example, the apostles. The last several weeks we've looked at the story of Paul. Paul completed one missionary journey. He started a second. We'll eventually do a third. And last week, if you remember in our study, the apostle Paul was in Athens and he'd gone to Athens and had noticed the idols and how the people of Athens studied and worshiped and loved the idols. And I kind of challenge you in modern times with understanding modern idols. We have idols sometimes that we're aware of, sometimes we're not aware of. And if you remember, I pulled my phone out last week and I said, this, for most people, especially younger generations, is becoming more and more of an idol. And we talk about that. And you know how the Lord kind of works in funny ways in your lives? I'm not kidding you. Monday, my oldest daughter, who's almost 17, her phone died. <laughs> not kidding. I mean, when I say it died, I don't mean the battery ran low. I mean the touchscreen quit working. Like, you know, you could push it as hard as you wanted. To, nothing would happen. And so, you know, much frustration and almost tears ensued, as you can imagine, for the next several hours. And we went up to Verizon, and we're in there for like two hours, which is typically the case. And talked to the guy, saw the different options. There's all kind of phones to choose from. I'm pointing at the flip phone. Honey, you think you want the flip phone? No, 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 no flip phone. So we get everything worked out figure everything out, you know, sign all the paperwork, get up to the counter. And my daughter is already, uh, you know, she's kind of having a panic attack because it's already been like hours since she snapped. And so her streaks are in danger. Those of you who know what I'm talking about will appreciate that. And so uh, we're at the counter and we're, we're about to pay and I give the guy my card. It works, no problem, uh, all over town. I've used it at Verizon. He plugs it into the machine and he looks at it and he, and he turns it around and he, he hands it back to me. And I'm like, what do I do now? And he said, well, I need your PIN number. And I said, well, this is a credit card. I run this as a credit card. I don't run it. I never use it as a debit card. I've never used it as a debit card. It's always a credit card. It's never failed to work. I say to the guy, in fact, I've used it in this store in years past. No problem. He said, well, we had an update on our system and all cards now, uh, if they're not specifically credit, because mine says debit on it, but I always use it as a credit card, you've got to punch in the PIN number. I said, I don't know my PIN number. have no idea. And so I randomly guessed like three or four numbers. None of them worked. He pulled the card out, handed it to me. said, well, you're going to have to give me your PIN number. At which my daughter at this point is mortified because I've already spent way too much time in Verizon. I don't have time to do the whole process again for two hours. I'm like, honey, we're going to have to do it tomorrow. you know. And she's holding back tears and sobs. And the next day, sure enough, I, I go to the bank. I get them to reset my PIN number because I didn't know what it was. Go back into Verizon. We do the same thing again. Get all the way to the end. And guess what? It runs like a credit card just like it's supposed to. <laughs> And I said, well, I was here yesterday and I had to get a pen number. He said, I don't know what to tell you. It's working now. (laughs) And I looked at my daughter. She looked at me. I was like, you think the Lord's telling us something here? Are we learning something here about faithfulness to the Lord? If we're not careful, those things become idols, right? And they're a big deal to us. And she and I just had some fun about that. She had a good spirit about it. We laughed about it. But it's true. Paul recognized idols. We should be recognizing idols. And so Paul has this great conversation in Athens in our study last week. He goes up uh, onto Mars Hill in front of the Acropolis. He's he's debating with the philosophers, and he's speaking with them. And then at this point in our study, and this is going to be important for us, he's going to leave Athens and do something different. Now something's going on in Paul's brain that I think I can prove to you biblically, but I want to get there first and help you understand kind of where we're going in our sermon this morning. So we have it on the screens. Acts chapter 18. Let's begin in one. I'm going to read the first verse, give you a little bit of context context and some background and then continue on to verse two. So Acts chapter 18 verse one. After this, right Paul has been in Athens speaking, preaching by the Acropolis in the marketplace. after all that, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. Now let's stop just for a second because I want to read between the lines of Acts 181 and Acts 182. Now let's remember, when Paul was in Athens last week when we studied, he kind of had a rough time with the philosophers, you remember? He goes up on Mars Hill, he's standing in front of the Acropolis, he gives this great kind of sermon, speech kind of idea, and if you remember, at the end of chapter 17, it tells us that when the philosophers heard him speak, do you remember what they did? Anybody remember? Say it. Do you remember what they did? Well, I'm about to re-preach that sermon, I guess. Let me... Y'all got time for two sermons this morning? They mocked him. They made fun of him. Remember, they didn't believe. They questioned him. A few people believe, but not many. And Paul is used to going into cities, preaching the gospel, lots of people getting saved, almost revival-like circumstances breaking out. So when he goes to Athens and he preaches to the philosophers, they mock him and they make fun of him. Most scholars say, listen, for Paul, that was difficult. That was kind of a change for him. He wasn't accustomed to that. He probably felt kind of beat down and a little defeated spiritually in that moment. Now we can kind of back that up with something Paul writes later. Now I don't want you to flip. I want you to stay at Acts eighteen one. But I want to read for you 1 Corinthians chapter 2 beginning in verse 5 because what Paul's going to eventually do, he's going to Corinth, see the last word in the sentence there? He's going to Corinth, that's the Corinthian church. He's going to write two letters eventually, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I want you to listen to what he says. He says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, right, when I came to you after I left left Athens, we're giving some context to verse 1 there, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, right? Not about my words, Paul says. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's always been Paul's message. It's always about Christ, always about the cross. Verse 3, this is interesting, right? We get a little glimpse into Paul's heart. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says, listen, when I showed up, I was weak, I was in fear, I was trembling, and my words had no power. The only power I had was through the Spirit. And I hope you heard that message, because it's not really about me anyway. So we get this sense get the sense that when Paul leaves Athens, he struggled, he's fearful, he senses his own weakness, he's trembling, he goes into Corinth and only has the ability to rely on the power of the Spirit. And so we would say Paul is probably struggling in this moment. He's been beat down physically multiple times. We've talked about that, right? He's been arrested. He's been beaten. He's been stoned. We know those stories. But in this moment, he's probably tired physically, but he hasn't been persecuted physically. But emotionally and spiritually, he's in a difficult place. Now, here's the application for us. How many of us, at some point in our lives, or maybe even currently, struggle emotionally or spiritually? Like maybe you feel beat down. You think, wow, this is a struggle for me. This is a difficulty for me. I I wish I could be kind of this person in Christ, but instead I'm this person. I have conversations with people on a regular basis and they say something like this. Listen, I used to be like this. I remember when I was this guy in Christ and I'm no longer there. I'm just kind of beat down spiritually. I'm beat down emotionally. That's kind of how Paul feels. And so we want to figure out now what Paul did in that moment of struggling and weakness in his words, fear and trembling, how he responded what we can learn from that, and then how we can respond in those same moments. So let's look at verse 1 again, then we're going to continue through. So after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, verse 3. And because he was of the same trade, right, the same career, he had the same job, Because it was the same trade, he stayed with him and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Some of you know this, but Paul was a tent maker. Verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and he tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Now I'm going to give you kind of this first truth based on Paul's Paul's life, and then we're going to work back through it together, right? Truth number one. We have it on the screen. Christians are not islands, we should not try to do ministry alone. Christians are not islands, we should not try to do ministry alone. Some people have this mindset with Christianity. They think they can just get their Bible and their journal and they can go into their prayer closet and pray all by themselves and do kind of everything alone and they'll be fine. Now there is a moment and a time and an appropriate opportunity for you to go into your prayer closet and to pray and to seek the Lord and to trust the Lord. But then there are moments where you come out of the prayer closet, you're with other believers in the world doing the work of Christ. And so what we begin to understand, and I want to walk through this and kind of point this out to you biblically, we're not islands. We shouldn't be doing this alone. Now Paul walks into Corinth, if you don't know anything about Corinth, Corinth at that point was probably the biggest city in Greece. Athens had had its moment of prominence a couple of hundred years before. It was kind of on the decline, but still a very important city. Corinth had grown a good bit, probably two to three hundred thousand people. It was a seaport. A lot of trade came through there. A lot of people came through there. And as kind of the case with most big cities where there's a lot of trade, the bad kind of came through with the good. And in fact, one of the commentaries I read explained it like this. It said, among the Greeks... The word translated to live like a Corinthian meant to live immorally. So bad things are happening in Corinth because of all the sea the trade and all the people coming and going. Paul is actually going to write the two letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. He's going to talk about a lot of that immorality and how they ought to live. But when Paul walks into Corinth, already a little beat down, he's going to walk into a very difficult place. Very difficult place to minister. So I want you to notice what he does. The first thing that he does, pull up verse 2 for me if you would please. I want you to notice exactly what Paul does when he walks into Corinth. Now look at the first three words. So Paul goes into Corinth and he, what's the word? And he, what's the word? Found. Right, there's, there's intent here. Right, it wasn't just kind of this random, he's wandering, not quite sure what to do. There's this idea that he walks in, he's going to find this person. He's going to find Aquila and Priscilla, who's the wife, and he's going to spend time with them because they're tent makers, right? And I can just envision Paul walking around the market. He's speaking to people. Maybe he's talking about the things of the Lord. Maybe he's debating with them. He walks up to their tent, strikes up a conversation, realizes that they're tent makers, becomes friends with them, and we'll see this in a few minutes, but they basically form this bond of friendship that will last the rest of their lives. Paul forms this friendship with Aquila and Priscilla and God uses this couple, this married couple, to do great things in the lives of Paul. I want you to listen to how one scholar explained this man and this woman. He said, These two who lived together, worked together, suffered exile together, came to know and love Jesus Christ together and made their marriage complete together. Now they were one in Christ And his love made a good marriage even better. That may be just the thing he's speaking to you now that your marriage needs. If either one of you has never placed your faith in the sacrifice which Christ made for your sins, your marriage cannot be complete. True oneness can only be found in Christ. So we understand there's this probably older, a uh, little bit more mature couple that now take Paul in, kind of under their wings. They allow him to live there, to train, to teach, to understand how to live and how he should function. And I'm just reminded of the people in our lives, the older people, the more mature people, especially the more ma- ma- uh, the spiritually mature people that pour into our lives. Like that train us, that help us understand. I'll, I'll never forget when I first took a job teaching. I graduated college, got a job teaching in Albany, Georgia, and I moved down there, interviewed, they hired me, and I said to the principal, listen, I don't know where to live down here. I don't know where the apartments are. I don't know where the houses are. I have no idea. I was fresh out of college. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do. He made this incredible offer me. He was a Christian man. He said, you know what? I've got a spare room. Why don't you move in with my wife and I till you can find a place to live? So I took him up on it. So for several weeks I don't know six or eight weeks a few months maybe I don't remember how long it was I lived with this guy and his wife and I'll never forget those, those moments kind of late in the evening where we just kind of sit in the living room and chat or I'd get up the next morning and he'd be eating breakfast and have a cup of coffee and have his Bible sitting on the table studying his Bible and I'd sit down and we'd just chat and just those opportunities those moments where he wasn't really probably thinking a whole lot about it and I wasn't really probably thinking a whole lot about it but he was pouring wisdom into me I still remember those moments like, I still remember some of the things he said to me. I still remember his love and his wife's love for me, how they offered their home to me. I think, you know, how often is that happening in our world today? Like, how many mature believers are pouring into the lives of young believers? How many young believers understand the benefit and the value of having someone older pouring into them? Because here's the thing about youth, right? And I can say this because I once was young. I thought I knew everything back then, Right? I thought I had it figured out. And the older I get, the more I realize I had no idea what I was doing. Like you don't know what you don't know. And so you need older people pouring into you. But here, here's the flip side of that. Older people, more mature people, we need younger people pouring into us too, don't we? Because a lot of times they've got a passion and a vision that we lost somewhere along the way. And I, I talk to young people sometimes and, and they tell me their plans and, and how they want to do these grand things. And it's, it's hard for me sometimes. I have to be careful because I'm thinking in my mind, that's never really going to happen you know good luck with that but but then I have to stop myself and I think you know maybe it can happen maybe they've got a vision and a passion that I need to buy into again I need to tap into again I need to understand right young and old coming together serving together working together Paul understands this Aquila and Priscilla understand so they basically form this friendship they form this bond now here's the interesting thing about this bond and the idea of fellowship together we find it all through scripture We find all through Scripture this calling that we're to work together in community as believers, in fellowship together. If you were to read through the New Testament, there are almost a hundred verses that use the phrase one another. For example, we should love one another. We should bear one another's burdens. We should forgive one another. We should seek good for one another. We should confess sins to one another. Over and over and over again, the idea of one another comes up. Why? Because we're supposed to be together. We're supposed to fellowship together and find unity together and work together and serve together. That's the way God designed it. And when you kind of become, pull that first point back up if you would from me please. When you kind of become an island and you're by yourself in your faith, you're walking into dangerous territory. So I'm going to give you four things biblically, four reasons biblically we need to be around other believers. We have them on the screen. Here's the first reason we should be around other believers. Number one, for encouragement. You need people to encourage you in your walk. Did you know that? And you ought to be encouraging other people. Now Paul and Priscilla and Aquila kind of found this. They encouraged one another. They loved one another. In fact, it's interesting to me, all through Scripture when Paul writes these letters, oftentimes after he found this friendship and this bond kind of grew, he wrote about these people and oftentimes mentioned them in his letters. So for example, Romans chapter 16, verse 3 and 4. Listen to the words of Paul. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. That's Acts chapter 18. My fellow workers in Jesus Christ, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. First Corinthians chapter sixteen, verse nineteen: The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Second Timothy chapter four, verse nineteen: Greet Priscilla and Aquila. On and on it goes. There was encouragement. They loved one another. They lived together. Paul wrote about them. This is a lifelong journey together of friendship. Here's the second reason we should be around other believers. Accountability. We're familiar guys with the passage of Scripture in Proverbs 27, verse 17. Iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. The idea is when we live in community, there are people that will hold us accountable. You know, I don't know about you, but when I'm by myself and I'm not around other people, I tend to gravitate towards this place where I think I'm just so smart and I got it all figured out. You ever do that? Like, yeah, that's the right answer. Yeah, that's the way it ought to go. Yeah, that's how it ought to work. Until I talk to somebody else and I realize there's a different perspective that maybe I'd not considered. Maybe there's a different answer to the question. Maybe I'm even asking the right questions. When we're alone and we're islands and nobody's holding us accountable, sometimes we tend to travel down the wrong road. But if we're living in community and fellowship, there ought to be somebody like men and women. You ought to have somebody in your life that you trust enough that will say to you, you're wrong here. You're missing this. Like you need to do a better job as a husband or you need a better job as a wife or better as a parent or better as a boss or better as an employee. You need people that are going to hold you accountable. But when we become islands and we don't surround ourselves with other believers and we don't really let people into our lives, that accountability goes away. Because here's what typically happens usually, when we try to hold somebody accountable, they get angry with us. Maybe they get bitter, they get frustrated, they don't want to hear the truth. It's hard, isn't it? It's not an easy thing. But Christ created Christianity to be lived in community, in fellowship. One of the reasons is so we can hold each other accountable. Here's the third reason. He created us to live in community so we can have unity and fellowship together. You should read through the book of Ephesians. Paul talks over and over again about the idea of unity. He talks over and over again about the idea of fellowship. He uses the example of the body several times and he says, listen, we're all part of the same body, but we've got different parts. Some are the feet, some are the hands, some are the eyes, different parts. And if one part of the body is not working properly, it affects how the whole body works. We're all different parts. We need to be working together, fellowshipping together, unified together to accomplish the things of Christ. That only happens when we're together. It doesn't happen when we're islands. And then the fourth thing, and the thing that Paul really understands, is we need partnerships in ministry. We need people that are going to walk along beside us as we do the work of the Lord. Some of you were involved many years ago. We did the faith ministry, and I bring it up pretty regularly because it was a, kind of a really important time in my life and my growth as a Christian. But for many years here at Rosemont, we had faith teams. They were three-person teams that went out into the community and shared the gospel. That's what we did. And we had different nights. Sometimes we did it on Tuesday, and then we'd do it on Sunday nights. And just different nights of the week, and we'd all show up. And I was always on a faith team. Amy and I did it for 10 or 11 straight years. And I remember very clearly some of those nights thinking to myself, you know, I don't really want to go out in the community tonight and share my faith. I just don't. I don't have a desire. I'd rather just sit at home and relax. Well, because I was on a team with two other people, there was accountability there. Because I was on a team with two other people, there was encouragement there. There was unity there. There was fellowship. There were partnerships and ministry. And we'd cry together sometimes because we'd go into homes and we'd hear bad circumstances, bad situations, and we'd get back in the car and just, we can't believe it we laugh sometimes. I'll never forget. One of my favorite stories I used to tell about faith is we went to a door. Now, this is, these are cold calls, a lot of them. And those of you that did this have some funny stories. I'll never forget. We walked over the door and... It's an apartment complex. I'm not making this up. I don't remember who's on my team. They can verify it if you're in here. But knock on the door and the guy says, Come on in! I said, um, Hey, I said, We're from Rosemont Baptist. He said... I'm not wearing any clothes. <laughs> like, who are you expecting just to come on in, brother? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So we left the flyer and we got out of there in a hurry. <laughs> There's accountability though, right? We encouraged each other, loved it. It's fun. We had a great time. It was difficult. We, we need partners in ministry. Paul understands this. Aquila and Priscilla understand this. Now let's continue. We've got to keep going. Look at verse 6. Pull verse 6 up. Acts 18, verse 6. That's a true story, by the way. I'm not making that up. When they opposed and reviled him, right? So he's in the the synagogue. He's sharing, teaching. They don't like it. They're opposing him, reviling him. He shook out his garments and he said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent, right? I'm, I'm kind of done, Paul says. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue, right? So Paul's going to just walk out of the synagogue. I've had enough. I've done it. I've done as much as I can. Your blood's on your own hand. He's going to walk out of the synagogue, and he's going to walk immediately into this guy's house. Now, verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. Together with his entire household, many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul, one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Now just to be clear, to understand, the Lord's talking in verses 9 and 10 about Corinth. Paul's going to be attacked in other places, but in that city, nobody else is going to attack him. Nobody else is going to harm him. He's got people there in that city that are going to help him. So Paul is seen already, listen, I need other people with me in ministry. I need partnerships. This is not kind of the silo island approach. Here's the second truth we need to understand as we walk through and think about what Christ has called us to do. As we're frustrated and struggle sometimes in ministry and in life, truth number two, sometimes we need to rethink our strategy. Sometimes we need to rethink our strategy. Sometimes we just need to back up and reassess. We we may say, you know what, things are just not going the way I want them to go. Things are not happening the way I want them to happen. Maybe I just need to back up and reassess what I'm doing, rethink my strategy. I want you to notice what Paul does. Pull up verse 6 again if you would, please. Paul's in the synagogue as is normally the custom. He's preaching, he's teaching these people, he's sharing Christ. And they're going to oppose him. They're not going to agree with him. They're not going to like him. So he's going to take out his garments, shake off his garments and say blood is on your own heads. I'm innocent. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. He's going to immediately get up out of the synagogue, walk into the house and share Christ there. So Paul is basically saying, listen, you remember, Paul has kind of had this strategy in every town he goes. We've seen this time and time again. He typically goes into the marketplace, very open, very public, shares Christ, debates, discusses. He goes into the synagogue, always shares Christ, debates, discusses. In Athens, he went with the philosophers, very open, public forum, debates, and discusses. So far, he's kind of had this public ministry in these different areas, but he recognizes in Corinth... In the synagogue, in this particular context, when it's not working, he kind of washes his hands of the whole situation. He leaves the synagogue, goes into the house. Now this doesn't mean necessarily we have to worship in houses, although you can. There are plenty of house churches here in America. There are house churches all over the world. Instead, what I think it points is Paul was willing to say, listen, if these people are not going to listen to what I'm saying, I'm not going to continue to kind of ride a dead horse, so to speak. I'm instead going to realize if they're not going to listen, fine. I'm going to kind of shake the dust off my feet and off my garments. I'm going to give up this strategy. I'm going to try something else to reach people for Christ. We ought to be asking ourselves, listen, what are we doing in our faith to grow What are we doing to change? What are we doing to reach people for Christ? And sometimes we may come to the conclusion we need to redo what we're doing. We need to rethink what we're doing. We need to change our strategy because our strategy now is not working. Now Paul enlightens us a little bit in his first letter to the church at Corinth. You'll be familiar with these words but I want you to listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 beginning in verse 19. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more to them. To the Jew I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law though not being myself under the law that I might win another under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. And then kind of the summary, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Now see, here, Paul. here's what Paul understands. Listen. I'm never going to change the message. It's always about Christ. It's always Christ crucified. But sometimes I've got to become different things to different people to reach some. Like if I can't walk in the synagogue and share the gospel and people are not going to saved, fine, I'm going to walk out of there. I'm going to walk into this home and I'm going to share Christ with them instead. Never changing the message, but willing to change the method. That happens in churches. We, we see that through the years in churches. I'll give you a couple of very simple examples. How many of you guys know what training union is? Just raise your hand. That's all I need you to do. Raise your hand. Some of y'all went to training union. Now this will be fun. Seriously, keep your hand up. And only of the people with your hands up. If you're under the age of 35, keep your hand up. Everybody else put them down. So nobody, see that? One, maybe two. But it was years ago. We used to do training union. If you're younger, you probably don't remember training union. But I, as a kid, remember training union. I remember with my dad, typically Sunday afternoon about five o'clock, hey dad, can I can I stay home from church? No, son, you're going to train union. You get your pants back on. We're going to train union. <laughs> you had the conversation with your dad too. You remember those conversations? Training union was good. It was a good it was like a discipleship program on Sunday nights. It was a good thing, but guess what? We just changed models. Still preaching the gospel, using different models. I went back and read this week, I think about how sermons have changed and the way sermons have been preached over the years and I've always been interested in that. I went back this week and I read a sermon by Jonathan Edwards. You're probably familiar with Jonathan Edwards, a Puritan, uh, one of the greatest theologians in American history, lived in the kind of early to mid 1700s in New England, pastored a church, was was greatly responsible. Uh, The Lord used him to start the Great Awakening. You're probably familiar with the story. But he preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And if you've never read that sermon, you ought to read it. I've read it several times. I read it again this week. And the thing that always strikes me about that sermon, there's several things that strike me. The first one is it's just theologically rich. It's just solid. In, in fact, I, I wrote down one of the things he says, very simply, It's again, the title is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He says, there's nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. We're sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's all he's got to do. So we're completely relying on him. That's kind of the point of this sermon. But I read that sermon, and i am just be very honest with you, kind of based on our culture and, and how people preach today and how we do it. You read that sermon, and if you were to read it, you would think to yourself, it's kind of dry. If I were to come in here next Sunday and preach that sermon the way Jonathan Edwards preached it, you'd probably, now I'm not judging good or bad here, I'm just saying you would probably walk out and say, eh, kind of boring Uh, A lot of depth. uh, And that may say more about us than it says about them. But it wouldn't be seen today as a a, a solid sermon. Why? Because there's no good illustrations in it. No funny stories. None of the kind of stuff that we think are important in sermons. Yet, I want you to watch this. When he preached this, according to accounts, I'm going to read, Jonathan Edwards was interrupted many times before finishing the sermon by people moaning and crying out, What shall I do to be saved? Like he's preaching and people in the audience are going, what do I, what do I need to do to be saved? The are the after he finished, people just kind of ran down to the altar to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. I think, man, I, you know, I, don't, I don't know about the style of that kind of sermon, but I sure wish I could preach a sermon that powerful today. Because I can tell you with all honesty, I've never been interrupted in a sermon by somebody hollering out to me what do I need to do to be saved. And we see methods change. We keep the gospel center. I think about how Paul began to reach out in this community and in this part of the world and he started to do something that was a little bit different. Again, methods are different. He began to realize, you know, if I'm going to reach more and more people, I can't just go into this town and share Christ and move on because if I do that, it's not really going to spread because I'm only one person. And so he started kind of this church planting movement. He would go into a town, he would preach the gospel, a few people would get saved and he would say, listen, you're now the church at Corinth. I want you now to be discipled, to, to study the word, to try to... Uh, no, he didn't say study the word because there wasn't a the word at that point. Listen to the apostles' teachings. I'm going to train you. I want you to understand who Christ was. Then I want you to go out into the world, share the same gospel, reach more people, and those churches will start. Right? Interestingly enough, it's the same model we see in India. When we send teams to India now, and we go and talk to the believers, they'll go into a village, They're, they'll share Christ, people will get saved, they'll plant a church, that church will go and plant other churches, and so on and so forth. It's an incredible model. Paul started that. We, we ought to be thinking, as we think about the lostness of America, I've I read some stats this week from North American Mission, why don't you listen to a couple of quick stats here. There are, they estimate 269 million Americans that don't have a personal relationship with Christ, 269 million Americans that don't have a personal relationship with Christ. In the city of Atlanta alone, there's one Southern Baptist church for every 5,210 metro Atlanta residents. One Southern Baptist church for every 5,210 metro Atlanta residents. Now there are other denominations, I'm not saying they're not, but there's just not many churches in Atlanta. We need church planting. We need people that are willing to go, that are willing to share, that are willing to plan, that are willing to look, pull that second truth up, that are willing to kind of look at the model of what they're doing and say, you know what, maybe what I'm doing is not working, maybe I need to rethink my strategy personally. Like some of y'all might be thinking, maybe I need to go plan a church. We need to be praying about that as a church. It's something we're heading towards, by the way. We need to be thinking and rethinking our strategy. But here's our problem. I need to finish up. I'm over time. Here's our problem. Pull up verse 11 if you would for me. Acts 18 verse 11. Here's the problem we're going to struggle with when we think about strategy, reaching people, trusting Christ. Look at verse 11. And he stayed there, this is Paul, a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Here's truth number three. Sometimes it takes time for the Lord to work. That's a struggle for us. We live in an instant society. You want food, you put it in the microwave and three minutes later you've got a full meal. You go to a restaurant, it takes more than about ten minutes to get your food, you're antsy. You download a full length movie now, it takes more than four or five minutes. You're like, good grief, how long is this going to take? You've been there, I've been there. That's the world we live in. It's instantaneous. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. The things that actually matter in life, the the lasting things, the deep abiding things take time. Go, Go talk to a man and a wife that have been married 50 years and ask them about their marriage. That took time for them to get there. It didn't happen overnight. Here's the thing I'm learning about marriage and a lot of you men will understand this. I love my wife so much more now than I did the day I married her. It's a deep abiding love, but it takes time, doesn't it? It's not instant. Raising kids takes time, doesn't it? It's not instant. We live in a world where we think we want to fix it right now. We want it right now. But I, I go to bed so often and I have this conversation with my life. I look back during the day and I realize I dropped the ball with something, especially with my kids, and I'll say, you know what, I messed it up. I should have done it differently. But it's just one day I've got tomorrow. I'll start again tomorrow. Why? Because it's a process. It's lengthy. Sometimes it takes time for the Lord to work. We've got to be patient. We've got to trust Him. We've got to give Him the time He needs to work and to mold and to shape us because God wants to do extraordinary things in our lives. I'm just telling you. We see it all through Scripture. He wants to take you in whatever situation you're in and do something extraordinary in your life. But we've got to trust Him. We've got to follow Him. We've got to listen to Him. We've got to believe He's at work. We've got to give Him the time to do what He wants to do. And when we do that, He'll take ordinary people. He'll do extraordinary things in our lives if we will just trust Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. Lord, it's very clear and understandable. We thank You for the message of Paul and and for what Paul went through and and Lord, how we just kind of get a glimpse into his struggles physically and emotionally and spiritually. Lord, we thank you that even in the midst of struggles for him, he kept the gospel at the center. I pray, Lord, that as we walk through life, we would understand exactly how Paul lived about the importance, Father, of being around other believers and challenging ourselves. Or the, the importance of, of, of hearing from you and, and trusting you and, and watching you work in our lives through other people, Father, is so important. I pray, Father, we would understand the importance of just reassessing sometimes what we're doing, where we are spiritually what strategy we have for growing in in Christ or growing as a disciple or reaching people for Christ. And then, Father, I pray for the patience, for the time necessary to become the men and women of God you've called us to be. Father, just use us. Strengthen us. Encourage us for the sake of your kingdom. Father, we love you. We serve you in all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can stand. The altar's open. Just a chance for you to respond. Come speak to me, however the Lord leads, as we sing together this morning.